I am Bo Ellis Breedlove, and this is the June Bug. Welcome to Season 2 of The June Bug. Thank you so much for returning and for your continued support of our project. The June Bug Project aims to educate and prepare people like yourself to provide compassionate and loving end-of-life care. And we do so by sharing these true stories of individuals end-of-life experiences. Our focus is on them, their perspective, their story. In Season 1, we told Caroline's story. It was a narrative that encompassed the last two decades of her life as she coped with dementia. In season two, we will be delving into the last 24 hours of a woman's life. Birdie is a 92-year-old woman who has made the decision to end her life on the eve of her 93rd birthday. Faced with a failing body and a cancer diagnosis, Birdie has accepted that her mind has outlived her body. We will be telling the story of her last night in this life and the hours leading up to her physician-assisted suicide. Details in this story, such as names and places, have been altered or fictionalized to preserve privacy. Episode 1, 6 p.m. I danced on the wings of a plane. On the banks of a collection of tributaries leading to the Columbia River, Nestled in the Palouse Hills, at the feet of the Blue Mountains in eastern Washington state, is Walla Walla. A unique time capsule, Walla Walla has been left behind in many ways. Walking down Main Street provides a tour of turn-of-the-century buildings that still dominate the city's skyline. 
The tallest building within sight is the Whitman Hotel. It has been the pinnacle of the city's development since its erection in 1928. Antique stores and second-hand retailers masquerading as art galleries and destination shopping belie the reality of a fading town that has spent decades teetering on the brink of depopulation. Like many American small towns, churches pepper the street corners, not only in the heart, but throughout the neighborhoods surrounding the city core. Dutifully keeping the population afloat is Whitman College, a liberal arts school that's drawn generations of Washingtonians to the eastern fringes of the state. With each year of graduates, a handful inevitably linger after graduation, starting small businesses or capitalizing on the ideal terrain for winemaking. It is a dry and arid place, Walla Walla. Hot summers and frigid winters. But it is affordable and safe making it an attractive spot for retirees who can't afford Arizona or Florida. For Miss Luella Pierce, her move to this small town at the age of 85 was neither for the climate nor the affordability. For her, it was a homecoming a return to the small town she had been born in and where she lived with her parents and siblings until the summer before her 15th birthday. Since that summer in 1936, Luella has lived across the country from Seattle to Myrtle Beach. During that time, she had never once revisited her childhood town. Even the modest home she now lives in was purchased sight unseen. The decision to move had been rash. Shortly after turning 85, Luella made the choice to return to Walla Walla. It was the place she wanted to spend her final years, though she would not be near family or really any persons she knew. They had all long moved away or passed on. Luella was a stranger in a familiar place. Luella. She never cared much for that name. It felt old-fashioned and dated even when she was a young woman. As a child, she had gone by many nicknames. Lulu was one that stuck throughout high school, though Mother always insisted the children went by their Christian names, both at home and church. It wasn't until Luella became successful in her profession as an adult that a new name came along, which she would embrace for the rest of her life. Birdie. Church. That was what brought Luella Pierce back to Walla Walla 71 years after she had first left. As a child, 
her family had been devout parishioners at St. Patrick's. She attended the parish's school along with her younger siblings. Luella's faith, however, dwindled shortly after she left home. But the season of her 85th year brought with it a revelation. Though her faith had long been discarded, she ruminated on the fact that no one truly knows what lies beyond death. And Luella considered herself a person fraught with sin and misdeeds. Thus, she chose to devote her last remaining years to the very parish she had been baptized in. And when that inevitable day of her death would arrive, Luella planned to leave everything she had to St. Patrick's. A last-ditch effort of sorts to repent for what she thought had been an eccentric life. Birdie gazed at a piece of tape hanging from the ceiling tile above her bed. She wondered who had put it there and why. Her focus and curiosity was interrupted by a nurse wheeling a cart into the room. The cart was laden with saran-wrapped trays of microwave dinners on plastic plates. Apparently, there wasn't an option this evening, as the nurse didn't ask Bertie to choose an entree. The choices, had there been one, were predictable. Beef stew or chicken pot pie. Neither were desirable in the summer heat, let alone in this room with weak air conditioning. Tonight's meal would be beef stew yet again. Bertie kept track of what she had eaten for each meal as a sort of mental exercise. Since arriving at this facility four days earlier, she had already eaten beef stew twice, chicken pot pie once, and each day started with the same soggy scrambled eggs and a cup of room temperature cottage cheese. Lunches were served in the communal dining room. Bertie declined to attend, instead taking a cup of coffee in her room and nothing else. The walls of the room were painted in taupe, marred with black scratches and dents from wheelchairs and nursing carts. The floors were lime green linoleum, a selection she intuited had been installed when the facility was first built in 1964. At that time, it had served as an elementary school. Since then, classrooms have been divided into 54 rooms equipped for varying levels of care. Birdie 
was in a hospice room. Since arriving, she had been clothed only in hospital gowns. None of her personal belongings were there with her. Even the clothes she had been wearing when taken to the hospital had been misplaced at some point. She had nothing of her own, except for her cross pendant. It was a small one designed for a child to wear, not an adult. A gift her mother had given her at Bertie's confirmation when she was 12. It was gold, and at the intersection of the cross, a small cushion-cut jade stone. Bertie had worn it for decades. Every time she said a prayer, she felt the cross and recalled the event it commemorated. This was how she spent the onslaught of hours that passed tediously, recalling memories and attempting to visualize every detail possible. Bertie has an exceptional mind. At 92 years old, she can still recall the attire her mother wore at her confirmation some 80 years earlier. A purple cotton summer frock trimmed with black lace. Her church hat was made of black cinema, ornamented with a bluebird wing and a purple satin bow. Mrs. Rosemary Pierce was always well-dressed, but in the fashion of her parents' generation and her youth, her attire was often more suited to the Edwardian era than the 1930s. It was a lingering peculiarity from a childhood spent in the upper echelons of Scottish society. The glamours of a par aristocratic upbringing was something Bertie never experienced, though Mrs. Rosemary Pierce made her best attempt at translating her old world upbringing to this environment of the rural Northwest. Laying in her narrow bed, Bertie curiously thought of what her life would be like had she been raised in the conditions her mother had been. That wealth had long been dispersed and dwindled, and the family title had dissolved after the war, but Bertie wondered if she would have found herself in a facility like this, at this stage in life, alone, without anyone to care for her, placed here by a hospital reluctant to send her home without a caregiver. This predicament Bertie finds herself in had been the result of an unfortunate mishap, a fall. While walking to the mailbox, Bertie had slipped on the pavement of her driveway. She laid there, unable to stand, for two hours. It was a sweltering August day. Her shoulders, arms, and lower legs were burned by the scorching sun. 
When a neighbor at last came across her, she was so dehydrated she was barely capable of speaking. Two days in the hospital served to do little more than provide rehydration and soothe the pain of the sunburns. When Bertie was scheduled to return home, a hospital social worker intervened. Bertie was deemed too weak and unstable to care for herself, and the decision was made on her behalf that she needed a full-time caregiver. If the hospital released her, they feared they would be responsible should anything happen. Bertie did not have the resources to pay for a caregiver. Without a viable option which she could afford and lacking family to be released into the care of, Bertie was instead placed in the care of the facility she now finds herself at. She had become a ward of the state. But this would soon change. Her great-nephew was en route to Walla Walla from New York. This would be Bertie's last bowl of beef stew. By tomorrow morning, Niccolo would be here to take her home. Are you a writer or an artist? Do you need help bringing your creative vision to life? Breedlove Creative Enterprises specializes in content editing and production for artists and authors. We work together to create new and unique media that will capture your audience. Visit bebreedlove.com to view BCE's client portfolio and schedule a free consultation. You don't have to go it alone. Trust Breedlove Creative Enterprises to make your project a success. Breedlove Creative Enterprises is proud to produce The June Bug. The comfort of her own bed soothed Birdie as she inhaled the familiar aromas of her bedroom. Scattered around her on the floral print duvet was a small collection of documents from her hospital release. Amongst them, one stood out. The paper was light pink, a stark contrast to the sea of white forms. It was a hospice-informed consent. Nearby, a letter from her physician stating something Bertie had kept private for the past year. She had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Just a week prior to her hospitalization and involuntary confinement to the facility, Bertie had received the news that her condition was worsening. Without treatment, her physician reasoned, she may have mere months left. 
At the time of this revelation, Birdie confided in her doctor that she did not want any treatment. Rather, she would allow the cancer to run its course with the hope it may provide a progressive and peaceful close to her life. She was ready to go, but only on her terms. Recent events, however, hastened Bertie's belief that her body was entirely, without doubt, betraying her. All she had left was her mind and the prospect of witnessing her physical form decay was too horrific to comprehend. The possibility of repeat hospitalizations, the fear of once more becoming a ward of the state, all control being stripped away as she would be forced to live out her years in what amounted to an asylum for abandoned persons. She had someone to care for her now, though, and decided that she would seize control of her forthcoming destiny. Once Niccolo had brought Bertie home, she promptly began the process of obtaining approvals for medical aid in dying. The result was swift. Birdie was approved. Her doctor performed one last home visit, an oddity that still existed in this small town. He delivered a small package of medication. When Birdie was ready, she would self-administer the prescription. What exactly would happen next was unknown. For some, mere minutes would pass. For others, hours. For the few, it didn't work. Bertie was ready for whatever may lay ahead. Niccolo read over the schedule his aunt had passed him. The yellow piece of notepaper seemed innocuous, but it contained a list of items that were anything but. Penned across the top, Bertie had written, My Last Night. Beneath which, a list of requests for her final evening. It had been a schedule discussed and prepared for, for two weeks now, but nothing could prepare either Bertie nor Niccolo for the evening that had finally arrived. It is September 1st at 6 p.m., two days before Luella Bertie Pierce's 93rd birthday, and it is the eve of the day on which she has chosen to die. 
The first item on the schedule, 6 p.m., dinner at the dining table, a big cinnamon roll, lots of butter, and a cup of coffee. Bertie was petite and frail. During her life, she had rarely been more than 135 pounds, but the past few months had seen her gradually decline to a modest 98 pounds. Her legs were weak and unable to support her weight for more than a few moments. The walk from the bedroom to the dining table was not feasible, and a wheelchair she had received from a well-meaning neighbor was too wide to navigate the narrow hallways of her home. Rather, draped in her purple paisley print house coat, Bertie was gently carried by Niccolo to her seat at the head of the dining table. There, awaiting her arrival, a warm cinnamon roll drenched in melted butter. Simple though it may be, this was her favorite meal. Bertie had decided that, given the opportunity to plan, she wanted this as her last meal. She had, in fact, requested it be both her last dinner and her last breakfast. The first bite was hot. Brown sugar cream cheese frosting coated Bertie's tongue and danced on her taste buds. It was the simplest of flavors, but the most joyous for Bertie. This meal brought about memories of morning breakfast as a child. Her mother serving homemade cinnamon rolls while her father served tea. Sunday brunches at beachfront cafes in Myrtle Beach when she was a young adult, living far from family and familiar places. Monday mornings at the studio office in Memphis as she paved her path as a career woman. A lifetime of memories punctuated by cinnamon rolls and melted butter. As a smile swept across her worn face, Bertie looked up at Niccolo and prodded him with a request. Nico, she said, there is one thing that isn't on that list I gave you, but it's the most important to me. Ask me anything. If I'm really going to leave this life in the morning. I want to share as much as possible before I go. Ask me anything, and I'll tell you. Niccolo smiled as a question came to mind. He asked why it is she's called Birdie. He had only ever known her as Bertie, but never knew how she acquired the name. I was given it in Myrtle Beach when I danced on the wings of a plane. As a young woman, 
Luella Pierce had found a natural talent behind the lens of the camera. She had picked up a job as a photographer's assistant for a Sears traveling studio when she was 21 years old. One morning, the photographer failed to show for work. Luella was met with a disgruntled mother of four who had planned to have her children's photos taken. Uncertain of her abilities, Luella knew the fundamentals of operating the large studio camera and decided to take the project on herself. Her natural talent developed quickly and she eventually found herself on the road solo working for Sears. After a few years, she ended up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. There, she was taken on at a beachfront resort as their resident photographer. Her responsibilities were simple, set up a table in the lobby and sell family photo sessions. The resort then split the proceeds with Luella and she had a comped room. Her hotel bathroom actually served as the makeshift darkroom. On vacation, though, few families were willing to endure the lengthy photo sessions, and even fewer stayed long enough for Luella to develop and prepare the images. At first, it seemed to be a flop, and she felt her job was soon to be eliminated. That's when she had an epiphany. The guests wanted mementos of their stay. What better than scenes of the beaches and resorts? She could take the photos and develop them ahead of time, having multiple copies on hand for spontaneous sales in the lobby. It was a gimmick some other resorts had already began, but Luella had an even better idea. She would take aerial photos. A young man she had befriended at a local supper club was a crop duster. He owned a small two-passenger biplane that he flew over the city frequently, stringing along banner advertisements or spraying the fields outside of town. He agreed for a nominal fee to take Luella up with him so she could capture the beach scenes from above, something no one else had ever done. This was a novel idea but the first two attempts flopped. The plane engine vibrated too much. All the images turned out blurry and unrecognizable. After some thinking, Luella prodded the pilot to glide, cutting the engine at mid-flight. On their third try, success. Just as the plane approached the beaches from above, the pilot cut the engine. The ride was smooth and silent. Luella's images turned out wonderfully, except for one thing. Each photo had some part of the plane interfering. In one image, you could see part of the wing, in another, the propeller, and in a third, the back of the pilot's head. The pictures were unique, but no one would buy them she needed to do something different. And yet again, she had an idea. But Luella knew that her idea was something her friend would not go along with if she told him in advance. 
On their fourth flight above the crowded beaches, the pilot cut the engine just as he had done before. But this time, Luella climbed out of her seat and shimmied on her stomach onto the wing of the plane. All the while, her friend yelling at her to get back, he was mortified. Luella laid on the wing of the plane and snapped three photos over the edge, hundreds of feet above the beach. Young families far below on the beach spied the scene above and began to shout and cheer. The photos were pristine, and the notoriety gained from the beach made for record sales. Everyone wanted to buy a photo from the woman on the wing of the plane. The pilot refused to fly Luella again, but she soon found another who would. And so, weekly, families would peer up from their beach blankets in the surf and see a blonde woman gingerly climbing onto the wing of a biplane with her camera. Every week, the cheers grew louder and more photos sold. Occasionally, music festivals came to town with live bands, and sometimes the bands would set up on the promenade on the edge of the beach. It was on one such day that, as she glided silently above the crowds, Luella could hear her favorite melody from below, the St. Louis Blues. As those gathered looked up in astonishment, Luella, for the first time, stood on the plane wing and began to dance. Her blonde locks blowing in the wind, her white cotton blouse billowing, her cross pendant glistening in the summer sun. Luella could not hear the cheers. She did not see the astonished crowds. All she heard was the distant melody of her favorite song while the gentle sea breeze caressed her. That evening, in the lobby of the resort, a little girl approached Luella and said, You looked like a beautiful birdie dancing in the sky. And so, on a summer Saturday in Myrtle Beach in 1953, Luella Pierce became forever known as Bertie. The June Bug is produced by Breedlove Creative Enterprises. Original music composed by Bo Ellis Breedlove. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. You can also help support this podcast and the Junebug Project by becoming a supporting member on our Patreon page, www.patreon.com backslash thejunebug. Thank you for listening. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Stay tuned for the next installment of The Junebug.